Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. As we study through the book of Genesis, let's turn this morning to Genesis chapter 22. We'll be reading the first 19 verses of Genesis chapter 22. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not, touch, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I... Know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided." Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and for Abraham, our father in the faith, and for Isaac, his submissive son. 
But Father, infinitely more, we thank you that you are a Father who loves sinners and that you have sent your Son and that he did, in fact, go to the cross and that he placed his submissive body there to suffer the punishment for our sins. We pray that we will understand and love him more because of this text of Scripture in Genesis this morning. Now, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The life of Abraham stands between two bookends. And the first one is God telling him to get up and leave the fatherland, to leave everything that he had known. And that came when Abraham was 75 years old. And so it was no easy thing to leave his homeland, his fatherland, particularly given the age that he had. Well, now we're talking about about 40 years later. So he's somewhere between the ages, we think, of 115 and 120 years old. And now, this is the end of the biography of Abram in Scripture. A couple more chapters to clean it up. One of those chapters is the account of Abram sending off his servant to get a wife for his son Isaac. And then Sarah, his wife, dies, and it's the account of Abraham burying his wife. But this is the bookend at the end of Abram's life. This is the final act of faith of Abraham that we have presented to us by God. And so here we see uh, an act of faith that uh, is unlike any other act of faith in Scripture. It's unlike in that we are horrified that God would command such a thing. It's very interesting, you know, once you begin to understand that abortion is the murder of unborn children, and you begin to listen to the news, and you, you, know, you look at the, uh, at the concern for uh, animals left in cars, and you know, for the eggs of bald eagles, and, but, and, and you begin to see the juxtaposition you know, up against each other of children and animals, right? Yesterday, <laughs> you guys, my, my grandchildren tried to guess which thing from yesterday would make it into the sermon today. <laughs> and uh, so yesterday we were down at that greenhouse on South Walnut. And as the kids and Doug and I, the women were gone and we were there buying um, some potatoes and some onion sets. And walking by us went this couple and they were a billboard for Bloomington. All right, if you can imagine a billboard for Bloomington. I'm sure they drove a Prius, although I didn't see it. And I drive a Prius, all right, okay. I'm sure they drove a Prius. And the, the, the accoutrements of Bloomington's sophistication were all there on display, right? With the addition of something that I have never seen before which is both of them had baby carriers, and then the babies were two little rat-fink dogs. And so they paraded among all the people at the greenhouse with baby carriers with white rat-fink dogs. Now, when I say a rat-fink dog, I'm saying not a real dog, like a, a lab, you know. 
But these, some of you have little rat fink. David, David Wagner has little rat fink dogs, you know. And here these dogs were preciously held. And I looked at them and I looked at the man and I said, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Had a big grin on my face. And he said, thank you. And I said, no children. And his wife said, these dogs are our children. So, you think about abortion today and how the demonic demands that we suppress children as it commands that we honor animals. You see this? It's flipping upside down everything that God has decreed, that man is the crown of his creation. And so, this is not an account of Abram to worship the God of education, to worship the God of respectability, any of the gods that we sacrifice our unborn children for, are you with me? This is not an account of demonic worship. This is the account of God himself commanding that Abraham sacrifice his son. And the two don't compute. They don't compute. If you think these two things compute, if you think this is synchronous with anything that you've ever heard about God, you're not looking at this story accurately. Because at the end of the account, we have God being called Jehovah Jireh, which is God provides. God provides. But here... God isn't providing, he is taking the most precious thing that Abraham could ever have, which is his son, the son of his love for his wife, Sarah. And God demands that Abram give that gift to him. Not just give it. He's not sending him off as a missionary to India. But God demands that he kill him and burn his body as an act of worship to God. And it's incredibly difficult to comprehend, isn't it? Why? Well, a lot of the reason it's impossible for us to get our mind around this is not just family love. You know, that's what we would like to make this into is an account of how you know, God loved, I mean, Abram loved God so much that Abram was willing to give up a secondary love, which is the love for his child, for his son, right? And so what love Abraham had for God, that he was willing to give up his son. But you already know that everybody in the world is willing to give up their sons today, right? I mean, that's the whole story of our court system. Everybody's giving up their sons, you know? You already know that everybody's taking ECPs and, you know, chemical abortions, and everybody's willing to give up their sons today, right? I mean, face it, dogs are so much easier. You know, when have you ever watched a dog give the what to to a father in the line at Walmart? You know, Daddy, I want candy. You know, the worst they do is bark, and you can put a muzzle on them. Some of you should learn that. 
So this is not an account of Abram loving his son, but having such a love for God the Father that he's willing to give up his son. This is an account of Abraham being a man of faith who knows that God has promised that through his son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, it's hard for us to imagine a man who is so godly that he's more concerned about God's reputation and God's promise than he is about his own attachment to his child. But don't make the mistake of thinking that the largest hurdle for Abram here was simply the fact that he loved his son. I'm not trying to diminish that. That was hugely awful for Abraham. But remember all the promises God had made about Abram's descendants. So right at the beginning, right when God first called him out of his fatherland, God said this to Abraham. He said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you what? I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And so if God's going to make a great nation out of you, say this promise came to you, your immediate thought back then, and it should be still today, is, How's that going to happen? I don't have any children. How can I become a great nation when I don't have any children, when my wife and I have had no children? How can I be a great nation? And by God's kindness, we have a number of couples in this church that we have prayed for them to have children. When they didn't have children, imagine them getting a promise that God will make you a great nation and he'll bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth through you. And it's like they're pining on the vine. You know, they have no children, and it's the defining fact of their life. And yet God made the promise that he would bless the nations of the earth through them. And we see that as time goes on, the promise becomes more specific, okay? In Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, The Lord comes back and makes another promise to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from now, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward. Look eastward and westward. For all the land which you will see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. So now it's getting more specific. It goes from all the nations will be blessed through you to now your descendants will have this land, okay? Then we go a couple chapters later to Genesis 15, and even at this point, Abram's thinking, okay, yeah, right, descendants, yeah, right, you know, like Eleazar, you know, it's somebody in my house, some relative, you know. And then we read, after these things, the word of the Lord, Genesis 15.1, came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Okay, so we start with, they're all going to be blessed. Then it'll be your descendants and now your own body, right? And this is where we have that... uh, 
you know, one of a number of uh, failures, right, sins, uh, Abraham and Sarah talk it over, and they're desperate. And they do what desperate people will do. They come up with a solution. You know, we're always trying to say to God, I have the same goal you have, but a little different way of getting there, and I know better than you do. So Sarah says to Abraham, take my servant, my maid servant Hagar, as your wife, and then you can have a child, and then God will be able, all right, God will be able to fulfill his promises. So sure enough, Abram marries her, takes her to bed, she gets pregnant, she bears a child, the child is Ishmael. Well, Abram's heart, naturally, after years of waiting, is completely bound to this son. And so he says to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. In other words, make this man the fulfillment of your promise. And God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's not going to be Ishmael. You are going to have a child. Your wife is going to have a child. Well, at this point, Sarah and Abraham are well past the age of uh, her being able to reproduce. And so when, when Sarah hears she's going to be the mother of the child, she's going to get pregnant and have a child, right? She does what any rational woman would do, which is t- she just laughs. You know, I'm, am I going to have pleasure at this point in my life? You know? Now, I wouldn't say she's cynical. I'd just say she's realistic, right? She says, this is just absurd. You can't be serious, right? Why did you laugh, Sarah? I didn't laugh. Because she's, she doesn't want to give her husband a bad rep, right? But she laughed. But God now has said, I'll bless all the nations of the earth. It'll be through your descendant. It'll be from a descendant of your own body. And then, nope, it's not going to be Ishmael born of Hagar. It's going to be a son that is going to be born to Sarah. And so this son, this son, who is unbelievably loved because the wait was so long, but also because this son is a child of old age. And being of old age myself, I can tell you that your children only become more precious to you. Imagine how precious Isaac was to Abram and to Sarah. It's incomprehensible. And then... Not Satan. Not Satan. You remember Satan asked for permission to test Job. You remember that? Then God decides that he's going to test Abram. And that's the beginning statement about this whole thing. And it came about after these things that God what? Tested Abram. Tested him. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Don't you love that about children? You call their name, and there's no confusion whether or not they hear it. They say, here I am. What a beautiful child that is, right? Here I am. And he, God, said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Notice this. Take your son, your only son, 
Take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love. And if there were any confusion which son that is, Isaac. You imagine what Abram was thinking <coughs> as God said these things to him. And go to the land and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. A burnt offering. A burnt offering. I fear today that we have turned biblical faith, Christian faith, into something that never has a cost. You just give intellectual assent to Jesus saving us from our sins. And you don't think about the words, you don't think about what that costs God the Father or his Son. You don't think about God's wrath against those who killed his only son. Because you can't think about that, right? That's politically incorrect. And so the whole world just says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you ask people, are you, are you religious? And they say, I'm a Christian. And you say, what does that mean? You say, well, Jesus died for my sin. And so we have these little things that we, we just spit out, but they have no cost. They really have no cost. They certainly have no cost for us. No cost for us. The concept that we interpret our suffering, women, you've been on a retreat this weekend, the concept that we interpret our suffering as God's test of us is just foreign to us. That, we, that God sends to us our suffering and examines our response to the suffering, and that his judgment is of our either showing faith or not showing faith in response to his test, to his, to, to his examination of us. Well, what's the point of Jesus? This is how we think. What's the point of Jesus dying if I have to be tested? I thought it was all of faith, right? This is how we think. And so if any suffering comes, it's all of faith, and so we have absolutely no grid to understand suffering because God wouldn't do that to me because it's all of Jesus, you know? It's all of Jesus. It doesn't have to be me. It's Jesus. God somehow, we begin to think of God as, as losing track of the fact of the substitutionary atonement, you know? God don't you remember? It's Jesus. He's the one that bore the sins. And so you don't need a sacrifice. You don't need my son, God. <laughs> you don't need my daughter to suffer, God, because Jesus suffered for us. And so anything in our lives that comes that is difficult and involves us, but even more our children suffering, we just react against it we just will not have it we won't have it why well because Jesus died he died to keep us from having to take up the cross ourselves you know that's the whole point we can't add anything to what Jesus did right and so this text begins with God 
revealing through his spirit that he set out to test Abram. Now, what is he testing? Well, he's testing the sincerity of Abraham's faith. He's not testing the object of Abraham's faith. You know, he's not testing whether or not Abram actually thought that his own righteousness would please God. What he was testing was whether Abraham, in whatever came to him, looked to God to provide. Right? Isn't that what we have as Christian faith? That it is Jehovah Jireh, that he provides, God provides. And so he's saying, okay, Abraham, you say that I'll provide. You live by faith. You waited a quarter of a century to have a child, right? You trust me, right? Yep, 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 I trust you. Okay, fine, take your son, put him on an altar, kill him, and then burn him. But God, you don't need that. I told you what to do. But God, that's not fair. You made me wait a quarter of a century for this son. You can't, you can't ask me to do that. Abram, I told you what to do. But God, even if I was willing to do it, what about my wife? I can't tell my wife that I'm going to sacrifice our son, the son of her old age. She loves Isaac. I can't do this. Abram, you heard what I said. God, would you please count? What, what do you mean, count? Well, would you like go, Abram, you, you better do it. I'm counting. <laughs> okay, one. When I get to 5,000. Okay, no, ten. One. One, one and a quarter. One and, what would it be? Three eighths, <laughs> one and seven sixteenths, one and fifteen thirty seconds. So Abram went into, he, dis, he discussed it with his wife. And his wife told Abraham what she thought of his deluded concept of what God had commanded him to do. And sure enough, she was not in favor of it. And so Abraham then went back to God. You know, he tried the thing about God, this, this, is, not, this is not needed. Jesus did it all. And then he tried this and he tried. So then he went back to God and he said, God, this woman who's my wife, I'm supposed to live with her in an understanding way as the weaker vessel, right? And God, she's, she's weaker, and she just doesn't get it. So would you give me a little time to prep her and to help her understand that I'm to kill Isaac and burn him? Now, I mean honestly. <laughs> it's like, do I need to keep going? Can you imagine if this was your son that you have raised and trained who had been told to do this? Eh, eh, fathers, are you with me? This son you have trained to give you every counter 
logical argument, you know, or every logical counter-argument for everything you've ever told him to do, who has an unbelievably highly developed sense of justice and fairness and what is lucid, let alone reasonable. This son, who can pit your wife against you before you say Jack Robinson. This son, who is absolutely certain that the world is his oyster. Are you with me? Can you imagine how he would respond to God commanding him to take his son and to kill him and to burn him? Or forget about your son, ask yourself the question, how would you respond? God's testing you. And he's telling you to sacrifice your son. How will you respond? How will you respond? Don't tell me that Jesus died to do it all for you so you don't have to do anything. Jesus died for Abraham. Abraham lived by faith. Abraham knew that God is the provider. This was never in doubt. And God tested Abraham. And so what did Abraham do? Did he wait for God to count to ten? Did he go talk to his wife? No. What we read is, verse three, so, so, I mean, it's just so nonchalant, right? And so, and so, so Abraham rose late in the morning. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. How long was the trip? It was three days. How long is three days walking next to your son and a couple of servants and a donkey when you're going to kill your son and burn him? How long is three days? How much opportunity did Abram have to come up with more reasons, more hesitations, more rebellion, more victimhood, more bitterness, more complaining, more fear? Abram is resolute. You know the meaning of the word resolute? You know that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says that soft men, Malachi, will never inherit the kingdom of God. I cannot think of any example in all of history other than our Lord when we have a greater demonstration of a hard man. A hard man. Resolute. Not resolute in pursuit of his own selfish desires, his own pride, but resolute in pursuit of obedience to God. And guess what? <laughs> I'm sorry, women. I love you. I love my wife. I love my daughters. I love my granddaughters. I love my mother. I love my grandmother. I love women. But somehow, somehow, Sarah doesn't show up. <laughs> you know? She had half interest in this child. In fact, you could argue, since he's probably still young, she still has a predominant influence. It's not that far away from the pregnancy and the birth and the nursing. 
And somehow Sarah doesn't show up. Why? Because she doesn't have a soft man. He's resolute. And what is he resolute? He's resolute for the glory of God. For the fear of God. For obedience. For faith. That's what he's resolute for. Well, inevitably the question's going to come up, and it's going to come up because Abraham has split wood. And this means that wherever they're going, Abraham does not depend upon there being wood that he can burn, right? And so it's, it's impossible for the question not to be asked that's asked, right? Which is asked by his son. They get to the place, verse 5, Abram says to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And that's one of the reasons that we know that he was a young man by this time because you've carried wood, right? This required a lot of wood because it had to burn up his son's body. And this son is bearing the wood. You remember who else bore the wood of his death? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Incredible picture, isn't it, of Jesus? And so here he bears the wood. He took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. No matches then. And so the two of them walked on together. There's nothing but firm resolve to submit to God. Okay? And then the desolate scene, verse 6, the two of them walked on together. And this is, this is an awful scene. The suffering of the father, and you can imagine it was palpable. You could smell it, you could taste it, you could feel it in the air as they walked. And don't tell me this son didn't know what was going on. Sons know their father's. And he knew exactly what his father was feeling. He may not know the details, but he knew this was the absolute hardest, most intense time in his father's life. He could sense his father's anguish. And so finally, the awful question comes from son to father. It had to be asked. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. Isn't that sweet? Every time I read things like this, I think of a phrase I hated more in junior high and high school than any phrase I ever heard. Do you know what it was? I absolutely despised it. It was my old man. That's how all my friends referred to their fathers. And I hated it. I didn't hate it, get angry at them, hate it. I hated it because it was an indication of the lack of love between the father and the son, and I just felt so awful about that, being the predominant thing in my school. I hated it. That's not how Isaac speaks to his father. He said, my father. And what did Abraham say? Abraham said, here I am, my son. So I put up a blog post a couple days ago about, uh, written by a 
anonymous woman, um, about how about how her father, when she got married, her father refused to say her mother and I do, but said I do. And when she talked to her dad about it, her dad said, look, after this wedding, your relationship with your mother will be the same, but your relationship with me will be completely different because I will no longer be the authority in your life, the male authority. That will be done and over, and you will now be under your husband. So immediately, you know, we live in a day that's just so decadent. And immediately the question comes up, you know, um, that makes her possession. That makes her um, owned by her father. Well, let me tell you something. If there was ever a woman who wasn't owned by her father, it was this woman. I know her intimately. I'm related to her. (laughs) No, she wasn't owned by her father. As a matter of fact, I would say her father was owned by her. As in, he owned her. You know the expression? You know, Michael Jordan playing like Ben Seltzer in basketball? (laughs) Right? He would own him. So immediately... Somebody writes and says, well, what would you say to children of a single mother? Right? That's what we do nowadays. We, we, we try to find the victim that keeps us from ever having to have faith. And if that victim, there's no explanation, then we have to be so precious with the victim that we can't see God. And so I said in the comments, what you need to do is explain to that single mother and her children the terrible loss they've suffered by the loss of their father. That's what you need to explain. Because without knowing the beauty of father and son, who will ever go to God the Father Almighty? Who will ever appreciate the authority and the tenderness and the mercy of God if they don't have a heart that seeks after God the Father Almighty? Listen, it does no good to anybody to hide from from the eyes of those who lack it, the beautiful father and sonship that's in this text. Everyone here, no matter what your situation is with your father, everybody here needs to see the beauty of Isaac and Abraham because Isaac and Abraham are a type that point to the antitype. And the antitype is God the Father who says about his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so he says, my father, and he said, here I am, son, and he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And so where was the lamb? Now, remember how I say we try to use the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died for my sins. We try to use this as a way of escaping any obedience, any fear of God, any love of God. It's just like this exchange, you know, that you like look in your checkbook and you say you deposited this amount and then you wrote a check on that amount and it's an exchange and it's done and there's nothing we can add to it, right? And so we eviscerate 
we remove the guts of Christian faith. Okay? And we shouldn't do that. And so where was the lamb? The way we do that here is we say, well, um, isn't this wonderful? You know, the lamb. Get it? The lamb. Where's the lamb? And watch what Abraham says. Verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And it's just so beautiful, isn't it? Because now it's all over. There's no more suffering. There's no more fear. There's no more tension. There's no more knife. There's no more death. There's, there's no more nothing, you know? The lamb, it's God. God's going to provide his own lamb. It's his son. And we even turn God providing his son into just bliss and beauty and perfume and, you know, and, and cheesecake and, you know, it's just, it's just wonderful. And God didn't, God didn't grieve his son. And Jesus didn't really die and we're right back at all the heresies. That's what Islam says about Jesus, you know that. Islam says that Jesus couldn't have died. He was, he was God. What kind of a God would you believe in that's so weak that he couldn't keep himself from being crucified? That's what the, Islam, that's what the Muslims said to me in Hyde Park, Speaker Square. This made fun of Jesus Christ because he's so weak he couldn't keep himself from dying. The son couldn't keep himself from dying. And so we look at this, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And what we do to this, and this is because of our devious hearts, we take that statement of Abraham and we say, see, Abraham knew he would never have to sacrifice his son. Abraham knew all along that it was a setup. And that's not true. And that's not true. When Abram said these words, Abraham was fully prepared and committed and expecting that he would pull the knife across his son's throat and that his son would bleed to death on the altar and then he would burn his body. Now, how do I know this? Well, you know it. We all know it because Hebrews tells us what Abram was thinking at the time. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called he, and this is where it says what Abraham was thinking, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Listen, don't let yourself off the hook. Look at Abraham and ask yourself whether if God tested you, whether you would fear God and would give him your son. Don't try to make this into something it isn't. God is a jealous God. 
And God's jealousies, we're told by his son Jesus Christ, are particularly intense when it comes to our children. He tells us that we must never put our children in his place. He says, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your brother, and your sister, you are not worthy of me. This last week, I, I was doing an interview for the book coming out, which is very sweet that somebody wants to talk to me about that book, that, that, that noose around our corporate neck. All right? And so he'd written the book about my dad putting me out of our home. And he was loaded for bear. He was just certain that, that you know, this was something that at the time I resented and that I, it took me years to get to the point where I was able to look back with wisdom, right? And so I was describing to him that there was a famous writer, and he knows the man, who wrote a book, and he knows the book, who, after he published the book, wrote me and said, I heard that after your dad kicked you out of the house, that, that, that one night you woke up in the middle of the night and there was your dad next to your bed and he was leaning over your bed and he kissed you and you woke up and he said to you, Tim, I love you. Is that true? And then you came back to Jesus. (laughs) And you all know, life is messier than that, isn't it? You ever hear a story like that? It's always a lie. So I wrote him back and I said, now you got the whole thing all wrong, so I'm glad you didn't publish it. (laughs) And I didn't even bother explaining it to him because I don't think he would understand. That's why I'm not telling you his name. But I told my family. I told everybody I love. When my father, a month or two later, came into the house I'd rented with a bunch of doping hippies, and went from every single room to room to room, looking in on this, these on their waterbed and this, none with the benefit of anything approaching marriage, you know. Dope, you know, art, art, you know. All the pretenses of dopers, that they're especially sensitive. Duh. Okay, okay, excuse me, I had to do that, right? I lived the life, right? I did tell him I was a doper on this nationally broadcast. I don't know if the interview will make it. but (laughs) Listen, it killed my father to do that, to go from room to room. My father was as proper as an eastern New York City man could be. And so when he got into my room, I knew he had gone from room to room. He had no idea what room I was in, and I was up in the front room of the upstairs, and there were a number of bedrooms he had to go through before he got to my bedroom. It was the middle of the night. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't want to minimize what that cost my father and what I learned that night about my father's love for me. He'd never been to the house, okay? But the truth is that my father's love was clear to me, not because of that night. That night was just the cleanup operation, you know? It was when my father made it very clear to me that if I would not have God as my father, I would not have him as my father. Do you understand that? God was my father's father. He would not have a son in his home if that son was not honoring his father. Do you see this? 
my father said to me, if you will not honor God, you will not live in my home. That's it. He didn't get real complicated about it. I was gone. He said, these are his direct words, very calmly on a, sat- a bright, sunny Saturday morning. And there had been no confrontation. He said to me, Tim, I have something to say. I turned around. He said to me, Tim, you are not honoring God. You may not live in my home. You see, this is the test that God brings to you that's like Abraham's test. You understand this. We are all constantly faced with choices between our children and God. Yeah, it's a very different test, but it's the same thing. We're always being presented with a choice between our father and our father, or between God and our son, or between God and our daughter, between our wife and our heavenly father, right? We're always having our family relationships parsed by faith in God. And so I said, no, no, no. It wasn't when my dad kissed me and said, I love you at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was when my father said to me, Tim, you are not honoring God and you will leave my home. And so then he said to me, well, he said, it must have taken you a few years before you could understand what he was doing. And he was just assuming that. It was getting near the end of the interview. It was recorded. It's not, it's not going to, if it makes the cut, it won't go up for a while. So it wasn't live. And so I said to him, knowing he could edit it out, I said, actually, uh, no, that's wrong. He said, oh, really? And he was an excellent interviewer. He said, well, I'm glad for you to correct me. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that in my life. (laughs) Oh, no, Marcy says that to me all the time. (laughs) Now you know I love you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I said to him, when my father said that to me, I said, I absolutely knew right then that this was my father's love. I knew right then that my father had never loved me as much as that. And I said, I know that you'd like me to tell you that I was converted there and then. And that from that point on, (laughs) you know, I became a godly young man, you know. No, I knew it was my father's love, and I was gone, and I did not come back to God then. All right? And I said, as a matter of fact, it was a couple years before I started coming back to God, and I haven't finished yet. Right? Isn't that your story? He's disciplining us. He's testing us. We're living by faith, and we're unbelievably weak. And so we repent, and Luther says that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And we come back to him, and this is what Abram's whole life has been. No, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Uh Uh-oh, bad things are going to happen. And then a little while later, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Right? I mean, Abraham is quite a piece of work, right? And what about Isaac? And what about Jacob? And what about Joseph? And what about David? Well, Joseph, we have hardly anything on, although he was insuperable when he was a young man. I mean, that kid. 
you know, you're going to bow down to me. <laughs> we have some children in this church that resemble that. <laughs> every single man of God, every single woman of God. Remember, Sarah commended and Peter, Sarah of the laughter, commended. All of these great heroes of faith. Rahab. And so Abram did not know that God was going to have a ram caught by its horns in the bush. Abram was absolutely committed to killing his son and burning him. He tied him. Why did he tie him? We don't know, but we suspect that it was not because Isaac was putting up a fight because Isaac would have whooped him. He's 120 years old or so. And this guy's the guy carrying the wood. What we believe is that likely Abram tied him so that nothing could interfere, that, that Isaac's better instincts would be kept to death. Do you understand? In other words, it's a mercy to assist his obedience. We believe that Isaac knew what was happening and submitted to it as an act of faith. I believe that. And so he has the knife up and he's about to kill him. And all of a sudden, God says, Abram, Abram. And there's the ram. There's the ram. Now let me ask you something. What other father gave his son up as a sacrifice to God? It was God the Father. And when God struck his son, was there a lamb found to replace his son? There was none. When it came time for the only beloved Son of God to die for us, God did not spare his own Son, but freely gave him up. Now, can you love a God like that? Can you love a Heavenly Father like that? You know, today the world is filled with people who claim to be Christians who reject the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, that he took our place and bore his father's wrath against us. They reject it, and they call it what? They call it divine child abuse. They don't have an inkling what God's justice requires, his holiness. They don't have an inkling of the depth of God's love for sinful man. That he would give his own son to purchase our redemption. And they think they're sophisticated in their understanding of paternal love. They don't have an inkling about the meaning of the submission of a son to his father. Think of how they've diminished Jesus' obedience of his father by this. That Jesus misunderstood. Or Schweitzer, who says that they had good intentions, but it all came to naught because they couldn't stop it, and so Jesus ended up getting killed. So that diminishes unbelievably the omnipotence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Listen, there was no other way. With Abraham, there was. There was a ram. And and I want to make the case that if Abraham had carried out that sacrifice of his son, I think Abraham might have thought that was sufficient. (laughs) You know? You could not have anything but the blood of bulls and sheep and rams because they had to point to something. You couldn't have a son because a son, that's such a precious thing. But when it came to the Son of God, there could be no other. There could be no other. There could be no other. There was no one else who was perfect and therefore a worthy sacrifice. God can't stand sin. There's only one who can take the place of you. Only one. And that's the only beloved son of God. God's so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what you would think. Uh, Luther goes on at length about this story, and he says that if we had been Abram, he thinks what Abram thought and what we would all think was that if God is going to take this son of promise, that it must be that we have really blown it badly, and so God is now judging us, right? I think all of us would hit this sacrifice like it was a judgment against us, and wouldn't have faith for it, you know? We'd think that we'd done something so awful that it required God to take this precious gift he'd given to us. But no, the whole thing was pointing as a type to the antitype, which is Jesus. It was all a setup so that you and I would live through Abraham and Isaac, God the Father, God the Son, and our redemption. That's the reason that this was done. But that doesn't remove the suffering of Abram. That doesn't remove the faith of Abram and his son. I love what Luther says about this scene because I think it's the way all of us should hit this account. He says this, I could not have been an onlooker. This is Martin Luther. I could not have been an onlooker, much less the performer and slayer. It is an astounding situation that the dearly beloved father moves his knife close to the throat of the dearly beloved son. And I surely admit that I cannot attain to these thoughts and sentiments either by means of words or by reflecting on them. Even in meditation, I can't come close to this. No one else should have expounded this passage than St. Paul. We are not moved by these sentiments because we do not desire to feel and experience them. Isn't that fascinating? The son is obedient like a sheep for the slaughter, and he does not open his mouth. He thought, so he's he's now thinking what Isaac thought. He thought, let the will of the Lord be done. This is what he says Isaac's thinking. Now, why does he say Isaac thought this? (laughs) Do you remember that verse that I think should be the favorite verse of every Christian father? Where it says that the means of God keeping the covenant is for a father teaching his children to obey God. 
right? And so he says this, Luther. He thought, this is Isaac, let the will of the Lord be done because he, Isaac, was brought up to conduct himself properly and to be obedient to his father. (laughs) It's like, I mean, you know why I'm laughing, right? We look at parenting the same way we look at Christian faith. It has no cost. Jesus did it all. That's all we teach our children. And so sure enough, when they become teenagers, they live as if Jesus did it all, and their obedience, their submission, their honoring of their father matters not a whit, right? Because he was brought up to conduct himself properly and to be obedient to his father, with the exception of Christ, we have no similar example of obedience. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says about this scene. It says, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. What's a type? A type is something there that points to something here. This is the type. This is the antitype. All through the Old Testament, there are types that point forward, right? And so what is it a type of? Well, we go to Isaiah, as we read this morning, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the son that the father placed on the cross and killed for your salvation? Now listen, if the beauty of that doesn't break your heart so that you repent and believe, you remember what Jesus said about this. He said, when that son is sent back to collect the earnings from the vineyard and the servants kill the son, what do you think the father will do to, that, to those servants? Listen, there is no middle place for you to stand, brothers and sisters. There's no middle place. Either you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, or you will be consumed in the Father's wrath. That's it. That's it. I can't imagine having anything but love for Jesus and for his Father. I can't imagine hating God. How could you? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. 
and so come to him. There's no need for hesitation. He will not put you out. Those who come to him, he'll never cast out. Right? Can I get an amen? Now we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is us proclaiming the death of the Lord. Why do we proclaim the death of the Lord? Because this was God's lamb. The account ends with God giving the ram, and then Moses names the place Jehovah-Jireh, or the mountain of Jireh, which is the Lord is our provider. And this is God's provision. The wine standing for the blood, the bread standing for the body of Jesus Christ, who said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no part in me. And so let's celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. If the elders would come, please.